Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Downloading to you from New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. For this episode, I am joined by the co-founder and CEO of luxury accessories brand Cara, Aaron Luo. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Cara, it's, it's a leading accessories brand with, I guess, an athleisure ethos. Um, but, but let me let you unpack it. You know, um, you're, you're the founder. And what, uh, what pain point were you trying to solve? And, and how does the product solve that? Yeah, so let me unpack the brand a little bit in terms of the, uh, the genesis. So the brand, the brand started in 2015. Uh, we're based out of New York City. And, um, you know, even though we coincided with the trend of athleisure when we first started, the idea was always to provide a handbag that can transition seamlessly with her lifestyle. It's primarily a woman's brand. You know, we have a little bit of unisex product in here and there, but primarily it's a woman's brand. And, you know, interestingly enough, um, when we started the brand in 2015, you know, we fell and we saw from both macro and micro trend standpoint that a lot of female consumers, especially in the millennial category in terms of age, are becoming more and more active, right? When I say active, not just working out, but traveling, visiting others, and, and, and even commuting. So, and what's interesting is that I think from an apparel standpoint, I think a lot of brands were catching up. Or, or, or even staying ahead of that trend in terms of providing the right apparel for her active lifestyle. Um, but when it came to accessories, especially in the higher end, you know, contemporary premium luxury price points, we just felt that there was a little bit of a white space and a gap. Um, and, you know, true now, especially true back then in 2015. So our goal is to provide a product that's made from some of the same luxury factories that some of the world's leading luxury brands um, keep the prices below five hundred dollars. That that's kind of the the the, the threshold we put in, um, just because we want to be accessible to most consumers. I mean, our price range is now between ninety five to five hundred, but the idea is that everybody can have access to. Um, but the most important thing is that you can keep up with our lifestyle. Uh, a high end luxury handbag brand that specializes in form and function. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that, and um, I'm sure you have more, well, you probably track your customers very well, but you probably have more male customers than you realize, because I think for men, men's gym bags tend to be just gym bags, right? There is no luxury option there um, that I'm aware of. And, you know, you go back to the 70s or the 80s, I mean, people weren't really working out as regularly as they do today as part of a lifestyle. Uh, working out, whether that is uh, yoga type fitness, you know, running uh, spin classes or the gym, it all involves wet stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You bring up a really interesting point. You know, taking one step back to kind of touch on, on the point you just made, in the US, there's this tendency that men just need functionality and don't care about fashion or stuff, right? And that, you know, I think the consumers are changing, you know, and especially true for the millennial and Gen Z consumers, right? That men does care. So to your point, we've seen the male consumers within our group in the last, you know, five or six years 
has definitely grown over time. Um, interesting enough, just to give you a couple of examples. One, from the gym standpoint, we're starting to see more women start first, buying back for their significant others, right, for men. And then, but once the man gets introduced to the brand, they come back. And we know this because it helps. They're like, hey, my girlfriend or my wife bought me a bag of the present, loved it, came back and started exploring what else you got. Because I need what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. That's point number one. Interesting enough, we also have a pretty extensive line of baby products, um, baby bags. That particular bag, so we, we launched the baby bag about three years ago. Um, that ends up being actually used more by the men in the relationship than the woman, just because per our analysis, men actually end up carrying the bag in the relationship, especially when they're going out together, right? So, well, it's interesting. I remember those days. My kids are, are past that, those diaper days, but um, maybe deep dive a little bit for our listeners into some of the, uh, this will be a technical term, the doodads that are on the bag that make them more efficient for today's lifestyle, whether that's the diaper bag or the more sort of uh, agnostic bag that's just meant for fitness for, for whatever, whatever the woman or man needs. Yeah, so I mean, you know, when it comes to men, men, it is true according to our analysis, do shop based on features first. You know, I think interesting enough from a marketing standpoint, you know, when you are targeting, you know, or talking to a female audience, um, it is true that aesthetic is the first thing they incline. So they look at a picture first, they're very visual. They want to see how beautiful the product is, how we'll look on them and kind of get them inspired in terms of what the bag will look on them if you if they end up wearing it. So I think it, it, you got to tweak your marketing language a little bit when it comes to chatting with the true audiences. Um, in terms of the product itself, you know, it is true that men do want a little bit more robust of a product in case they abuse it. So they, they want to feel comfortable that it's not going to break, right? So for gym, for instance, if you are bringing a bag to the gym into the office, and you're throwing the bag around in the locker room, you want to get comfortable that it's not going to get scrapped up and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, when we're thinking about more of a unisex line, certainly durability, it's, you know, one of the key factors that we pay extra attention to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in terms of those doodads, what, uh, what, what are a few of those features? Yeah. So, so interesting enough, when we sat down and designed this and, and, you know, I don't take any credit on this. My, my creative director and, and her team, um, you know, it, it did a really extensive job in terms of reaching out to north of 250 moms and dads nationwide to kind of get an understanding of what's interesting to them. Um, I think first and foremost, you know, we want the bag that can transform and can be carried in a different modes. So let me explain. So you want to be, able, you know, they want to be able to carry as a backpack, as a crossbody or to be able to put it on a luggage if they are traveling with a bag, right? Um, and then on top of all that, they want to be able to also hang it on their stroller if they wanted to. So through research and, and focus groups, um, we understood that it is something that we needed to build in as part of the bag. So when you look at our baby bag, for instance, it has those four different ways that you can carry the bag. And then if you are not using one of the modes, you can actually hide the strap so it's not dangling and, and you know, not looking as sleek as you like to. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, you know, obviously, we also created a caddy. Um, so caddy is something that's basically an insert that has pockets around it that you can actually insert in or insert out on the go. 
So what a lot of our parents end up doing, customers end up doing, is that they have they buy separate caddies, um, so inserts, one for going to the park, or one going for a walk, or one going for the office, or for wherever they're going. And depending on where they end up going, they end up inserting different caddies into the bag. Just something very useful that people can just pick up and put in or pick up and go, so they don't have to be always thinking about what they need to put into their bag on a daily basis. Um, you know, and then, and then, you know, last thing I mentioned that, that's worth noting in terms of the, uh, the features is um, a lot of our consumers, dads or moms really, but, you know, they end up carrying a lot of food, whether it's baby food or snacks on the go within the bag. So we made the outside pockets of the bag to be um, temperature proof or, or a thermal proof so that if you end up putting cold products or, 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 or hot products that the temperature remains in. Those are very thoughtful doodads for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, when it comes to babies, I think people were really vocal. You know, it, it, this is one thing that we found very interesting is that when we went out and asked our customers, what do you care about when it comes to a baby bag? I think we we felt that people were slightly more passionate about what they wanted because I think uh, I, I think they, they a lot of our parents knew exactly what they were looking for. Yeah, well, that is a that is a, a tough segment of of customers to to keep happy. But let's talk about you for a little bit. Yeah, you, uh, you have an MBA. You uh, after business school went to the apex really of corporate America in GE, General Electric, yeah. uh, where many people consider that experience alone to be kind of a, a post postgraduate education of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but not necessarily one that's rich with people who have become entrepreneurs in that's the right. fashion space. That's so right. maybe talk to me about how the MBA and the GE experience prepared you for entrepreneurship or or not. <laughs> so, so a little background about myself. Um, my family has always been in handbag or fashion manufacturing global supply chain for the last three decades. Um, we were fortunate enough to help a lot of global brands or Italian brands to expand their manufacturing footprints into Asia back in the 70s, 80s. Um, so, so it's in my blood to a certain extent, you know, in terms of my relationship with fashion growing up or being in, in that space with, with a family. Uh, but I didn't want to go back into retail or fashion right away. You know, you know, after, after undergrad and business school, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, for me, it was all about how to manage and scale business, right? So, you know, my time with GE was fabulous. Um, what I took away the most from GE from my time there was a couple of things. One, financial rigor. Right. It's, it's, you know, in terms of operating rhythm, operating mechanisms, um, you know, how to look at a business with, you know, the highest rigor possible, both from a financial and operational standpoint, and then how to take a business from small to medium, medium to large, and so on and so forth. So how to scale a business. Um, that was very interesting to me, very important to me coming out of undergrad, even knowing that I needed to know those mechanisms in terms of how to manage a business. So that's first. Second thing is people. You know, GE, you know, especially when I was there, I think it's still true now. You know, we always, they always said that people is your number one asset. And, and in Cara, um, we, we treat it very much the same. You know, we, 
always try to hire the best and the brightest, um, you know, and, and, and always trying to create a role or, or cultivate the asset that you have internally, right? So, so people, it's, it's very, very important to, to me. Um, it is true, I think, you know, GE being one of the top industrial companies, historically speaking, it's not really known for entrepreneurship per se. Um, you know, for me, it was one of those things where I saw an opportunity in, in fashion and retail that was ripe for, and I hate this word, but I'm going to say it anyways, that was ripe for disruption. But, you know, what's interesting, if I look at kind of our journey, you know, beyond kind of us identifying, you know, a need in the market for a functional backpack and transition with her inside and outside of different areas like office and, and gym, What's interesting when we started the brand was that we started seeing back in 2015, some DTC brands start coming up, right? And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if I will allowed to name names, but, you know, I'm thinking that the Everlands of the world, the Bonobos of the world, right? And, and what's interesting when, when we looked at a lot of those brands, DTC brands, the early DTC brands, um, was that they, they were, there were a lot of good things about them. Right. They they created a great customer affinity with their customers. Um, they had a great branding about them, you know, especially because most of them went after millennials back then, especially. So the branding was on point. There were a lot of good things about those organizations. But what's interesting for us back then, when, we, when I left GE and started, started Cara, was that none of those brands led by product to a certain extent. You know, the product were good but we felt that it could be better. So our thesis behind Kara was, what if we learn from you know, all the DTC brands that came before us when it comes to customer service, branding, customer journey, customer acquisition, which is a very important part, right? But flip the coin a little bit and let product kind of shine, right? So instead of let marketing kind of take the lead role in terms of customer acquisition or customer experience, do that, but really, lead with product superiority, create kind of a, uh, you know, almost like a war around a differentiating through product versus just marketing. So, so that was kind of our thinking, you know, in terms of the thesis that we had back then. And um, yeah, but, you know, I to kind of answer your question in, in summary, you know, I, I adored my time with, with the, you know, I, I I wouldn't change a second what you know in terms of my journey just because it gave me it gave, gave me the foundation that I need, I think, to not only just start a brand, but how to grow it and scale it. Yeah, product first. I mean, that is um simple, but shockingly not, yeah. <laughs> not digested by every brand out there, right? Uh, I don't know if that is the historic primacy of marketing in fashion, which most fashion brands are used to a cycle of production where they really need to continually be promoting uh, the new season that's coming out. What do, you, what do you do on the marketing side? I mean, I think it is great that the product should speak for itself because what better marketing than the person has the bag and the bag is functioning well. But uh, specifically to marketing you know, beyond the product itself, what do you do as a brand and um, you know, what's working and what's not working in these strange times? You know, these are strange times, you know, it's, it's um, I, I think whatever tactic or whatever marketing channels work before the pandemic, it's, it's shifting as we speak even uh, just because, you know, 
COVID, we said a lot of different things, right? In terms of marketing and you know, customers behave and customers um, convert. I think as an overarching theme, I, I want to say a couple of things. One, you cannot grow your brand through advertising. You know, it's it's that's one thing that we it was very clear to us. It's more clear to us more than ever. You know, back, you know, I, I referenced a couple of brands in the early days of DPC. These were days where CPC and CPM, I'm using a couple of tactical terms, you know, or technical terms when it comes to marketing, but it boils down to back then, early 2000s, acquiring a new customer through social media platforms like Facebook was very easy and cheap. You know, it, it's, you know, that, that, that platform was growing like a weed. Uh, a lot of people were starting to evolve towards it. Um, and then there weren't that many brands in the early days that leveraged those platforms to acquire customers. And certainly not the big ones that had a huge wad of marketing cash to spend on. Right. 100%, 100%. So it was very lucrative to a certain extent to acquire customers that way. And I think it sustained some of the early brands, you know, pretty well, you know, in terms of customer acquisition and building that base. The reality is that social media platforms is becoming a lot more expensive. Um, and if you, you know, I always say this as a rule of thumb when I mentor others, you know, if you're uh, allocating more than, you know, let's say 30 or 40%, or if you're counting more than 30, 40% of your revenue coming from digital advertising, you're in trouble, you know, because what, what happens is that as soon as you stop in terms of spending, it, it's, it's like a drop, right? It's like, you know, as soon as you stop, that revenue goes, and, and then what do you do, right? So, and, and, and so, so that's, that, that was very clear to us right away that you cannot, you have to play, I think it's important to be on social media. It's important to engage. But for us, it's all about content, right? So organic content is, to us, the only way, you know, from the marketing standpoint that we think in the long term can win. And that's all about understanding your customer first and then feeding her or serving her the content that's relevant to her, whether it is, you know, a yoga class that's interesting to her, a routine that you might want to put out. It might not have to do anything with your back or the product you're selling. But just feeding her with the content that's relevant to her and to your brand, I think that's very important for us. So that's one area that we'll continue to invest. Um, and how do you do that via a blog or a social media feed or feeds that 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 have a storyline or a narrative? Yeah, so primarily we still use Instagram and Facebook. I think those are the two main social platforms that we use. You know, obviously we have, you know, a budget in terms of social media advertising. Um, I think, like I said before, you have to play as a brand, you know, it's, it's just one of the ways to engage with your customers. But we do leverage those platforms to create content or distribute content, if you may. Um, social media influencers is, uh, you know, and for us, that translates to micro-influencers. That's a huge area of growth continues to be for us. Um, and that's all about spotting and finding those influencers that we think are branded, you know, in terms of own brand to, to who we are and can help us tell the story to their audiences. So we partner quite a bit with them. Um, that's another channel that we leverage. Partnerships, it's another one. We've had, we've seen some really great partnerships over, over time, big and small, right? We've had partnership from, you know, Athleta all the way to Michael Influencer. So it's a big range. and. You know, we're fortunate enough to actually, you know, kind of have the ability to test a little bit and see what works and what didn't work. 
Um, when you say partnerships, are those are those brand alignments like collaborations that you know are brand lockups, or are they different types of partnerships? Yeah, so so it's it's all of the above. So in the case of Athleta, for example, you know, for a, a, a good chunk of time, you know, we were basically helping them essentially design and develop um, a collaboration handbag line called Cara X Athleta. So it's a collaboration in that sense, right? So it's a co-branded product. Um, when it comes to some social media or influence or celebrity partnership, that varies, you know, depending on the celebrity or, or the influencer, it, I think we structure deals slightly differently. And, but usually that's more of a promotion versus a co-brand product. Right. So, you know, for us, it has to feel organic. It, you know, it has to feel right. It has to feel, it, it cannot feel transactional. I mean, that's one thing probably that we always look at first and say, does this feel right? Are two brands aligned? And then if the answer is yes, then I think we'll proceed before even looking at the PL or the financials look like. But but I would say that's probably the third channel that worked really well for us in terms of marketing. Okay. Well, let's um there's there's a lot. Um there's a lot to cover. <laughs> Still on the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd love to yeah. I'd love to deep dive into your work with influencers or micro influencers. Yeah as you've described them. What is a micro-influencer to you in terms of um, both following and, and engagement? And how have you found them? Has it been on the Instagram and Facebook platforms themselves? Have you engaged a, a separate agent? Uh, what's the process? So um, yeah, yeah. So, so influencer itself, you know, I think has evolved quite a bit over the years with platforms like Instagram and, and Facebook, right? Um, the reality is that look, influencer existed since the beginning of the time, right? I mean, the term influencer is just basically someone who's in the middle of the shaking and in and, and the middle of, 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 of the cultural movement, if you may, right? So that term is not new. It's just, I think social media has kind of created a different mechanism for the influencer to distribute their message and so on and so forth, right? So that's the, so, so, so for us, I think the reason we like micro-influencers is because we feel like they have a lot closer of engagement with their customers uh, or their followers, I would say. Um, a lot of them are less commercial, you know, if that's the right term. Um, you know, a lot of big time celebrities, which all we also love, um, ends up promoting a number of different products. And some work really well, some doesn't. And because usually they come with a pre pretty large price tag, you know, we, we're a little more picky, you know, and, and, and choosy, if you may, in terms of kind of celebrity partnership versus micro-influencers who feel like it's a lot more organic and a lot more kind of, you know, daily conversation that we're able to have with a lot of it, right? Agents usually are not involved and usually it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So we just feel that to be a lot more organic, a lot more fluid. Um, we find them in a number of different channels. You know, our PR agency obviously does a really good job in terms of helping us spot them and then, you know, creating a on our behalf relationship with those influencers. We actually in-house do a very, you know, uh, I think good job in terms of reaching out and finding them ourselves, right? So back to my point earlier, you know, if you look at our social media team, then themselves are influencers to, to a certain extent, right? So they are in that world, they are in that community. And they themselves are able to actually attract or even reach out to those that we think could identify themselves with the brand, and um, and then you know kind of bring them on board and start working with us. So 
I, you know, I, th I don't think there's a silver bullet in terms of like, this is the one thing that we do and it works every single time. But I think it's, 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 it's a combination of those two things primarily, I would say. Yeah. Well, and you're doing it the right way in the sense that it should be the brand reaching out to the micro influencer organically and directly because anytime you have lenses through which it's being filtered, it, it, it potentially goes off message. Um, to the extent you're comfortable for, for the fashion lawyers listening in, yeah. you know, what do those deals look like? Is there a piece of paper associated with those deals or it's just, hey, I'm gonna send you some stuff. Yeah. Please post it and it's all just kind of verbal. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question actually. Um, so there is a piece of paper usually involved. You know, I, I have to say in the early days, they weren't always the case, especially when you're small and, and still growing. I think, you know, not that we didn't understand the need for a piece of paper, but, you know, whenever there's a piece of paper involved, I think conversation tone changes a little bit. Um, like, whoa, 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 what do we ask you to do? What, well, what the lawyers looking at that piece of paper, and so you get another piece of paper. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, that's, that's, another, that's another thing, you, you know, there's, certain base costs and, and fixed costs coming with, uh, you know, legal rigor, right? It, it, it's always, you know, look, it, I always say this, if you can't be protected, you should always be protected. Um, you know, when it comes to influencer partnership and deals, I think it depends, right? Large deals, obviously, it's a lot more expensive in terms of what that paper or papers look like. But I think when it comes to influencers, it, it's pretty fluid. I mean, even if I look at what my you know influencer engagement agreement looks like it's a one pager right it, it's at the end of the day you know it's about do they feel that they can identify themselves and their audience with our brand and vice versa right and and you know the way i think about this is that yes it's business transaction at the end of the day because it's their livelihood um you know because these are professional influencers most of them right they're not you know folks that does this for hobby. So that's, that. I mean, they, they count on that to, to make their, their monthly revenue. But, you know, we always go in with the hope that can we, can we build a relationship here? You know, can we actually work out of this transaction, whatever the transaction looks like and actually hang out? You know, like I personally put myself and I think my co-founder does the same thing is, you know, can we actually form a relationship with this influencer or celebrity that at the end of the day, you know, can we grab a meal together or have a drink together or play tennis, whatever it is that we end up doing all today, right? So I think that's kind of the mentality that we have in terms of how we're approaching, you know, all, all of these partnerships is, yes, we want to be protected. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a human relationship aspect to, to all, the, all the deals that we do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they're so limited in time usually that um, often you're way out over your skis as a brand in having the discussion with the influencer and that documentation struggles to catch up. You know, the, the, yeah. the collaboration or the influencer engagement may have already happened and you got lawyers scrambling to, to paper <laughs> what, yeah. what the deal was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's talk, um, let's talk supply chain for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you obviously know a lot about supply chain and, um, you know, I did not know that uh, that your family has a background in the production facilities that you use, which is fantastic. But supply chain has been such a hot topic, yeah. in a sense, finally, yeah. because the industry is a wasteful industry in terms of uh, production and its eco impact. Yeah. 
The industry also does not have a good track record with respect to human rights and, and yeah. treatment of employees. Um, what do you think about those two spheres and how do you address them in your supply chain? Do you message that to your consumers? Do you not? And um, you know, what's the future gonna bring? Yeah, you know, look, I am so glad you brought up supply chain because back to my earlier point, right? I feel like, you know, especially for, for new brands, right? You know, when it started, I feel like it's so much emphasis has been put into customer acquisition and marketing. Uh, I think we forget the 500 pound gorilla in the equation, which is supply chain. You know, I always say this, you know, I think for a successful brand to really have longevity and be sustainable and grow, supply chains, at least 50% of the equation, if not more, you know, in terms of getting that right. Um, you know, to, to address some of your questions, you know, sustainability to me, I think has probably two major faults. One is the product, um, fabrication sustainability, so labor, material sustainability, all goes into that bucket. And that's usually the bucket that most people think about, you know, when they think about the word sustainability, it's like, you know, are you using recycled products or, you know, are you carbon neutral? I think that's the, that's, that's a lot of what people kind of directly associate with when they hear the word sustainability. To me, that's an important part of it. The second bucket, I would say, is probably corporate sustainability, right? is that as a corporation, as a brand, comes with certain responsibilities, you know, to your customers and, and to your employees, right? And to your investors, if you have them. Um, are you being sustainable in your practices? And then let me break that down a little bit in both buckets a little bit, right? In terms of how we're thinking about this. First, it's, you know, the, the material and the labor in terms of sustainability. And I think that addresses more of your question. First of all, I would say from a labor standpoint, so we own the factories that we, we use. Um, we, we have a stake in it. You know, I think, you know, especially for your MBA students and, you know, I did a, tons of MBA cases, even with my time in GE, I looked at a number of different businesses in terms of the diligence. There's this theory, and it's a good theory, that, you know, non-vertically integrated brand is the way to go. It's more profitable, you're more controlled, you know, you're able to leverage a bunch of different distributors or manufacturers, right? And then you as a brand just control brand and distribution in the market. Very established model, Nike does it, you know, a lot of different brands does that. Um, you know, most, I would say, consultants would tell you that that's the way to go. You can talk to McKinsey or BCG and so on and so forth. Um, I personally believe that you have more control, might, might not be the most profitable way, but you have a lot more control if you own your supply chain. So we're 100% vertically integrated, right? From the moment that we procure the raw material all the way to distribution and you know, and, and delivery of the product. Obviously the last mile is done by a courier like USPS and UPS, but up until that point, the entire supply chain is managed by us. It's owned by us, that we have a direct say. So I can control my salary for my employees in Asia, in Europe, um, I can control which shipping company I use. You know, the, you, you have 100% control of it. So the way I think about how to do the right thing in terms when it comes to sustainability, to me, that framework has to be there. Otherwise, you just don't have control. You're imposing some kind of, you know, third party or some kind of a contractor agreement with your factory. It's just a paper. 
right and and paper is meant to be cheated if they wanted to or or they can go around that if they need to right so you can't really be 100 percent sure until you really own that facility uh, own you know have a have a skin in the game if you may. particularly because most of those facilities for most brands that are either us based or, or european based are not in those jurisdictions a document which may well be governed by a foreign jurisdiction that you know nothing about and you know the cost of dealing with that situation in that jurisdiction may be prohibitively high 100 100 and, and and you end up you end up probably spending the same amount of dollars right kind of managing that situation than if you were just staff and put that money into investing in your own supply chain you know what i mean so it's it's uh, so that's the first thing I would say. You know, when it comes to product sustainability, Doug, I, I think um, you know, I think I think you know, for accessories and, and I think for apparel is a little different. I think we need to do better. You know, we as an industry and certainly us as a brand, I think the sustainable material world is getting better, but it's still not there yet in terms of that value and cost equation. Meaning that it's still very costly to get access to sustainable materials. That sustainable, the sustainable material is still viewed very much as a niche product versus a, a widely available product. But that basically translates to you got to pay premium for it. So as a brand, you know you have a tough decision to make, right? Either you absorb that yourself and make less in terms of your margin, and your PL has to be structured that way, or you pass it along to consumers. Um, and, and which also is a problem because then you have to educate them and say like, why is this product more expensive than your neighbors? Um, and you have to educate them based on sustainability, right? So I think I think we as an industry we, we got to do better at that. Um, and, and I think we we certainly for us we're constantly trying to find more sustainable materials that we can use as part of the production, right? So and then a lot more I can say there, but in the interest of time, I'm going to park that for a minute. I do want to touch on the corporate sustainability aspect of it because I'm pretty passionate about that. Um, <clears throat> Not a lot of people talk about that because I, I feel like, you know, so, so a very, I want to say typical model, but more and more, especially in the last five years, you start seeing a lot of DTC brands, right? Start popping up that are venture backed organizations. You know, they're, they're, they're funded by venture capital funding, if you may. And, and nothing wrong with it. You know, I'm not here to shit on anyone as far as like the modeling goes. And, and I think there's a time and place for everything, but you know, the reality though is that if you are a venture-backed organization, right, the expectations of you delivering for investors is very different than if you, you, you are backed by private equity or backed by family office. And I mean, there's, you know, even you taking debts, right? I mean, it's just the expectation is different because your investors from venture funding is different. Hockey stick. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Because most investors, like, let me, let me, let me give you the funding you need, but you better deliver quickly so I can cash up. I mean, that's kind of boils down to that, right? And, and what's interesting is that if your majority funding structure is based on venture funding, you as a CEO or as a brand owner, what you're forced to do essentially is going out there and grow your business in that slope that you just described. And that's great when the market's up and, and you are able to deliver, but you know, think about what happens, and we've seen some cases, right? A pandemic has proven to be, you know, a perfect living example of this. Um, what happens when the market tanks, you know, or the consumer tanks, or your product becomes less relevant? 
That means that you have to lay off employees. That means that you have to somewhat disappoint your, your, your investors, which they should be accustomed to disappointment anyways, because that's the nature of venture investors, right? It's the, the, the betting, they're, they're betting, they're gambling essentially on, on, on what they're putting their money. But to me, this is an important point to raise because what about the suppliers and the customers and the employees that you have as a brand, right? It, it, you know, that you acquire perhaps over the number of years that you have the mentor funding, but you know, what happens when you no longer have the cash to sustain organization and you end up laying off a bunch of people? To me, that's sustainability, you know? So, so I'm mentioning this because, you know, we actually purposely were very choosy, you know, and very careful in terms of picking the right funding model um, you know, look, you need funding to grow and to scale. That's the, that's the bottom line, you know, in business, but as you know, but, but, you know, you just have to be very careful because to me, I think when it comes to venture funding works for a technology company, when it comes to brand might not be the perfect fit. That, that's kind of what, what I think about this. So, and yeah, that, that's how we're approaching sustainability. Again, those two things, you know, we, I love B Corps. Um, Cause I think, you know, yes, it's a stamp. It's a little bit of marketing, but it does force brands to think about managing their own brands in a slightly different lens. So we, we're looking at that. So there's a couple of things happening there. Um, but again, I, I hope that answers your question in terms of how we approach. No, absolutely. You are in a very, very rarefied space to actually own your production facilities. Um, as you rightly pointed out, major multi-billion dollar brands and yeah. that is, look, it's offloading risk. Yeah. You, you, you said it, there is a business case to do it and it's offloading risk. And it's also offloading, I think today we've learned guilt because to make a t-shirt for $5 means someone is paid below a living wage essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as a brand, traditionally they turned a blind eye to that and just went after margin, margin, margin. Um, let's talk about COVID. We haven't really discussed how that's impacted the business. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> launch, you had a, an expectation of, of people out and about and, and using your accessories and other products. Uh, you know, how has COVID shifted that? Um, and what have the opportunities, if any, been? Yeah, you know, COVID is, I think, hit, hit all of us, um, Good and bad, you know, so I want to break that down a little bit. I think, you know, for, for us, you know, obviously the use case has, especially in the early days of COVID, the use case has declined a bit, right? Remember, as an accessories brand, the whole point, the whole use case of the brand is to, you know, go with her, right? Whether she's going to the office or going to travel across country, going to Shanghai, going to Tokyo, wherever she's going or going to the gym. We want to be there for her. Obviously, that stopped for a number of months. For us, what's interesting is that when the pandemic first started, you know, we asked a question as a brand to ourselves and to our consumers is how can we help? We we went out there and asked how can we help? And back then with masks. Um, you know, not necessarily the N95s, but you know, back in February, March, April last year, you know, there was a very much shortage of masks. Uh, everywhere, and we said, you know, let's let's give the consumers what they needed, right? So, um, so we ended up actually transforming part of our factory. So going back to my point earlier, that because we own our own factories, 
we actually have a lot of nimbleness, right? A lot of flexibility in terms of what we can do. So we actually changed and, and then reconfigured some of the, you know, made some investment. The board and I made some decisions pretty quickly, but, you know, made some investments, reconfigured a factory to actually make masks for, 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 initially for a short period of time. And, um, and I think what that allowed us to do during the COVID time by offering masks, even though masks is not a core product for us, is that we able to build a lot of two-way dialogue with our customers. You know, a lot of goodwill, a lot of relationship building with our customers in the sense that customers actually said, wow, you know, the fact that you guys offered product and on top of that, we actually donated for each mask we sell, we donated to a nonprofit organization. Um, you know, that, that, that basically resonated quite a bit with our customers. Well, how about style inspirations for you? I mean, are there any men who you look to, whether alive or dead, candidly, yeah. as, as your style inspiration? Yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, you know, obviously the classic one, David Saloran, you know, I think a lot of his style, uh, just, just simplicity of things and how elegant he was. Um, Ralph Lauren is another, uh, you know, brand and person, you know, that I, I, I just think that he put, he put an American sports code on the map, you know, as far as like, kind of his contribution to the world, right, as far as like what, what, what he, so I look at, you know, kind of that realm of things, um, you know, I, as a brand, I think, you know, I, I look at brands like Lulu, you know, Lulu is doing some great things, and so is Nike, you know, when I think about more active wear, um, you know, it, it's, I feel like, especially Nike, or even Lulu, you know, they, they're marching or moving away from just kind of a garment brand, you know, to more of a material science or, or product technology company, which, which I think is marvelous. You know, which I actually think that back to our point that we discussed earlier, you know, when I look at how the world or some of the brands is evolving towards, you know, kind of playing more with material science and, and technology, right? Product technology, not like, you know, kind of digital technology, but actual physical product technology. Um, there's something to be said about actually flipping the coin and going to explore owning your production and owning your factories, because once that becomes your core competency, right? So it's no longer the branding, the big deals you sign, it's actually the product itself. There's something to be said about actually owning the factories and the supply chain along the way, because that, that's your core competency now. So, you know, we will see what happens there, but yeah, those are some of the brands that I, we, we constantly look at. Um, you know, and the last one I throw in the mix is Patagonia. You know, I, I just think as a brand, um, in terms of what they stand for or how they go about this, you know, as far as like how they think about sustainability in, in, a, in a meaningful way and, and even dump the products, you know, how, how durable the product is, how they're now embracing secondhand tradings, which is something we're exploring as well. I think, I think they're, doing, they're doing a lot of cool things that, that we will look at. Again, less from a style standpoint, but more from a kind of corporate organizational product design standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, well, as you evaluate the B Corp certification process, which I am familiar with, certainly your control of your supply chain will be a great asset to you. Uh, many of those questions are so, so hard to answer. I know. And your relationship with a factory has been merely phone calls, right? And um, 
it can be cost prohibitive for small brands to go boots on the ground and visit production facilities that they work with. Uh, but that is what the certification really um, requires on some level, if you're not making up for your score uh, in other areas. But um, no, it is, um, it is a great addition to, to the corporate form insofar as it does allow a, a business like Patagonia to make decisions, hard decisions, that don't necessarily benefit shareholders or shareholder wealth yeah. as much as a mission that in the case of Patagonia is centered around um, the planet uh, and the people on the planet. Um, well, so Aaron, awesome. That is a wrap. Uh, thank you so much for, for zooming in. No, this has been great. I, I, we can talk for hours. I, I, uh, I'm glad we touched on some really good and important topics. Um, this, uh, this was really, really fun. And it was a pleasure to meet you. So to all our listeners, uh, the brand is Cara. And um, check it out. Any, any social media handles you want to disseminate at this point or uh, the website? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we can be found through the website, which is Cara, so C-A-R-A-A, -A, uh, carasport.com. Um, or you can find us, you know, on social media and Instagram with the handle of Carasport. So at Carasport, C-A-R-A-S-P-O-R-T. So we love dialogue. We, we love, you know, kind of engaging with the customers to have the two-way dialogue with, uh, with whoever wants, uh, wants to chat. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, um, we, um, we look forward to growing the community even further. Great, Aaron. And thanks again. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.